best-selling leadership author Stephen Covey tells the following story about an incident he experienced in the New York subway system, an experience that would radically alter his perception of what is often happening behind the scenes of our lives. I remember a mini paradigm shift I experienced one Sunday morning on a subway in New York. People were sitting quietly, some reading newspapers, others lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It was a calm, peaceful scene. Then suddenly, a man and his children entered the subway car. The children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. It was very disturbing. And yet, the man sitting next to me did nothing. It was difficult not to feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive as to let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else in the subway felt irritated too. So finally, with what I felt like was unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. The man lifted his gaze as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time and said softly, Oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Can you imagine what I felt at that moment? My paradigm shifted. Suddenly, I saw things differently. And because I saw things differently, I thought differently, I felt differently, I behaved differently. My irritation vanished. I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or my behavior. My heart was filled with the man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Your wife just died? Oh, I'm so sorry. Can you tell me about it? What can I do to help? Everything changed in an instant. My friends, compassion changes our perspective towards others and even our own outlook in life. In the same way, how do you think God looks upon us, His people? Do you think of Him as a God who is always looking at us to catch our mistakes and play the gotcha game? Or do you think He looks upon us with compassionate eyes? Because of lots of reasons, whether it be because of our lack of biblical understanding, a skewed view of God, or even having an Asian or legalistic upbringing, we don't believe God to be very compassionate. We see Him more as a God of justice and vengeance. And yet the Bible teaches that God is both equally a God of justice and a God of compassion. He is by nature holy and just in all that He does, but He's also loving, gracious, and compassionate. Compassion is part of God's character. The Bible speaks of God's compassion in ways that emphasizes His love, His desire to show mercy, His natural inclination to show pity. Exodus chapter 34 verse 6 tells us, Exodus chapter 34 verse 6, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. And then in Isaiah chapter 49 verse 15, God's compassion is compared to that of a mother. 
Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. My friends, the Scriptures are clear. God is a compassionate God. Now let's see how God's compassion is seen in our everyday lives. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18 as we take a look at verses 40 to chapter 19, verse 8. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 40 to chapter 19, verse 8. As you're turning to this passage in your Bibles, by way of contextual background, our passage takes place after Elijah had a showdown with 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. If you remember, on top of Mount Carmel, it was made clear who is the one and only true God, Yahweh. He showed Himself sovereign, living, and great, with fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice offered to Him. And this is where we pick up our story in verse 40 of 1 Kings chapter 18. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. The Bible tells us Elijah asked the people of Israel to seize the false prophets of Baal and kill them. All of them were captured and put to death, which was the punishment for all the false prophets as mandated in the Old Testament laws from God. This act illustrates clearly how a holy God views sin and deals out justice against sinful living, which are consistent with His character and who He is. Now, these commands of God may lead some to view Him as someone who's only vengeful and full of retribution. And with this one-sided skewed view, our relationship with God today will be based on fear and trembling. Many of us who sin are like children who have done something wrong and are simply waiting to see what punishment is coming or thinking every bad thing that happens to us is God disciplining or punishing us. When my two older boys were toddler age, I knew if they had been good or bad that day with mom, by the way, they greeted me when I came back home from work. If I came home to no boys greeting me, then I knew they were hiding from me and had to be punished because I knew my wife told them, you boys just wait until daddy comes back home. I told Cindy to stop saying that or they will begin to associate me with punishment and discipline. I want to be the cool dad. You can be the mean mom. While we should have a healthy respect and fear of God and honor Him, for His character demands it. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us come boldly to the throne of grace where we receive what? That we may obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need. The Bible describes clearly God is one who is compassionate, a God whose holiness and justice does not preclude Him from being compassionate and merciful. Now let's see three evidences of His compassion that are present every day in our lives. I read now verse 41. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. The Bible tells us that Elijah was very sure that God was ending the devastating drought in the land of Israel, which was a punishment for their apostasy, because now they acknowledge the one true God, Yahweh, on Mount Carmel. And so the prophet Elijah told King Ahab of Israel to go rejuvenate himself 
by getting some food and drinks to prepare to head back to his palace before the heavy rains. Now, this may seem odd for Elijah to be so sure of what God would do, but he knew God's character. If you read the Old Testament, it becomes very obvious that God's unconditional love for His chosen people has never wavered even in their disobedience. God always kept His promises. So Elijah told Ahab to go and eat, for heavy rains are coming. By providing rain, it showed very clearly that a God of justice can forgive His people and restore them. And this is our first biblical principle, biblical principle number one. God's forgiving restoration evidences His compassion. God's forgiving restoration evidences His compassion. My friends, the mere fact that the Lord is willing to forgive us of our sins and restore us to a right standing before Him and others is clear evidence of His compassion, care, and kind heart. Now look at me at verses 42 and 43. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And seven times he said, Go again. The Bible tells us King Ahab does what Elijah instructs and goes to nourish himself while Elijah goes back up to the top of Mount Carmel and puts his face, his head between his knees. Elijah is in a posture of humility, a position to intercede and ask of God in prayer for rain to come. While Elijah is interceding with God, he asks his servant to go and look eastward toward the Mediterranean Sea, where rain clouds usually form. From Mount Carmel, and I've been up there many times, you can see the Mediterranean Sea to the east on a clear day. Six times at Elijah's request, the servant goes up to check the eastern horizon for any sign of rain. I've always been fascinated by this. Why doesn't Elijah look for himself? Why does he ask his servant to look? The Bible is silent, although this is one of the questions I want to ask of Elijah when I see him in heaven. Why didn't you go yourself? But I think he is preoccupied, fervently interceding with God on behalf of the people, asking God for forgiveness and to restore His people. You see, my friends, forgiveness and restoration are not automatic. Forgiveness and restoration are not automatic. God has every right not to forgive and restore. God is under no obligation to bring back the reins to the people after His people have turned their back away from Him for so long. And so every time Elijah's servant comes back with a report of there not being a rain cloud, Elijah would plead with God more and ask for his forgiveness and restoration. I think this slight delay shows a great truth about how God operates. We can see that God's restoration after forgiveness does not always come immediately once we confess. It doesn't mean that just because we said sorry that there will no longer be any consequences, that all will be well. Yes, God forgives us of our sins through Jesus Christ. But as there are often consequences to sin, there doesn't have to be immediate or full restoration. So listen carefully. While the drought would end, that is sure, because of what God revealed to Elijah, 
it doesn't mean rain would come immediately. Perhaps this is something we have to really understand so that we don't abuse the truth of God's compassion. Just because we said sorry and asked for forgiveness doesn't mean we get our old life back. Many people have this notion that all will be back to normal after they sin if they simply ask for forgiveness and are repentant. But that's not how God works. God will forgive through the blood of Jesus Christ for sure, but in His sovereign plan, restoration may take time. And my friends, when God does restore, He restores completely because there's no such thing as a half-baked, partial restoration in the way God works. So be encouraged. Now look with me at verse 44. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, There is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. The Bible tells us, When the servant goes the seventh time, he sees a small cloud as small as a man's hand. And Elijah knew that God had forgiven his people because he will now restore rain back to the land. And Elijah knew that if rain was coming, it would be coming down hard and fast. So he tells his servant to go and tell Ahab to quickly head back to his palace in Jezreel before it gets too muddy and flooded to reach it. Verse 45, Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Quickly, the fist-sized cloud turned into mammoth rain clouds, and the rains poured down, a sign of God's compassion as He forgave the people of Israel and restored the rains to the land. While we may be theologically reminded of God's compassion as seen in His forgiveness and restoration in this story, you may wonder how we can see this tangibly every day in our lives. Well, the fact that you and I have the opportunity to live today and take a deep breath of life is that reminder of His compassion. If we were really to get what we totally deserve, you and I would not be living at this very moment. There is no reason for God to keep us alive if we honestly think about it. What is our daily contribution to His kingdom? How do we live for Him every day? Do we or do we not? What sins do I commit daily in thought and action that is against His Word? Why should God be so compassionate that He forgives and allows us to live another day when we don't really deserve it? And yet He does. That shows His compassion for what we undergo in life. And also, not only are we able to have life, but that God would restore by not taking away from us many things and letting us have what we don't deserve or have long ago disqualified ourselves from is evidence of His compassion. For example, we still have our children with us even if we have not been good role models to them is evidence of God's compassion. We still have our businesses and they are flourishing even if we perhaps have used this honest means to get where we are today is evidence of God's compassion. The fact that we have food to eat every day, even though we complain about it daily like the Israelites in the wilderness, is evidence of His compassion as He forgivingly restores us to our present condition. You see, my friends, 
It is not about what God takes away from us. It is about what God lets us keep that we should be thinking about. Do you get that? We shouldn't be complaining about what God takes away from us or doesn't give us. Instead, we should focus on what God lets us undeservingly keep and hold on to that should be our focus. This mindset helps us see God's compassion in our lives every day. In fact, this is what our compassionate God has been doing since the day Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. God has been in the process of fully restoring what man has messed up and disqualified himself from having. You know, God could have washed his hands of us and ended the human race right there and then. But thank the Lord that he didn't. His compassion for his people has led him to try to restore what we've messed up since day one. Think of all the RE words in the Bible, all the re words in the Bible regeneration, resurrection, redemption, reconstruction, and so on. God's compassion is daily evidenced in his forgiving restoration. Now look with me at verse 46. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Interestingly, the Bible tells us God miraculously allowed Elijah to run faster than Ahab's chariots down the mountain to the city of Jezreel. Now, why is this little miracle important? Was there some sort of foot race to the city of Jezreel? No, but as we'll soon see, because of something that will happen in the city, it will require Elijah to be past Jezreel when it happens. Let me show you what I'm talking about. I read now verses 1 to 3 of chapter 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. The Bible tells us, when King Ahab told evil Queen Jezebel what had happened on the top of Mount Carmel and how all the 450 prophets of Baal were killed and presumably the 400 prophets of Asherah as well, she was very angry. She put a death sentence on Elijah and vowed to kill Elijah by the end of the day. Well, where was Elijah? He was no longer on Mount Carmel. Remember, God enabled him to run past the city of Jezreel to safety even before he knew there would be a death warrant, a death threat. This is a picture of God's sovereign protection. Now, Elijah was on a spiritual high, having just been the conduit for God to reveal his greatness on top of Mount Carmel. Then he saw God bring the restoration of rain after the people acknowledged the Lord Almighty. And now he probably expected everything to continue to go well for him. But then that peace was shattered when he found out he has a death warrant on his head. His world imploded. His world collapsed. I'm sure many of you have experienced what you can call a Jezebel message or a Jezebel call, where you are on a spiritual high, all is going well, and then a call or a message of great discouragement changes everything. 
when your greatest fears are realized or when your world collapses. It was seven years ago on a day I vividly remember when I had just commented to my wife that we were so blessed and everything seemed to be going well that I had one of those moments. I was speaking at an international conference when I got a call from my parents from the U.S. telling me that my mom's cancer had returned after 15 years of remission. I was told that it was an aggressive form of cancer and at least stage at 3B and that it would be good for me to return back to Texas to perhaps spend my last summer with her. The news completely shocked our family and all of my plans fell apart. I canceled my summer speaking plans in California and quickly flew back to Texas with my kids to bring as much joy to my mom as only grandchildren can for their grandmother. One phone call changed everything. Joy turned into immediate fear, and I began to think of the worst. I began to sleep very little, worrying as I've never worried before, as I am particularly close to my mom. Deep prayers crying out to God, all from just one phone call. Of course, praise God, the Lord didn't take her life that summer, but has miraculously extended it at least seven more years and counting. But I do remember the feeling of anger and despair, crying out to the Lord. I'm sure you've experienced these similar moments and can empathize with what Elijah does next. Now look at me at verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. The Bible tells us the emotional response of Elijah as he reached the safety of the wilderness near Beersheba after he had stopped running was that he hit spiritual rock bottom or spiritual depression. Elijah doesn't want to go on with life. He quickly forgot how he had remained safe under the protection of God for three years, hiding by a brook in a widow's second-floor guest house. He immediately forgot what God had just done in showing his awesome power on Mount Carmel. What does Elijah do? He prayed that God would take his life. These questions must have been swirling all throughout his mind. Where is God in this? Why doesn't God seem to do anything? Why would he allow something like this? Does he still care for me? Does he know what I'm going through? Why is there a death sentence? And the response of God, as we will see, is not anger, but one of patience. As he allowed Elijah to pour his heart out, all of his anger and frustrations and perhaps even bitterness. God could have rightly gotten mad at Elijah for having such little faith or how forgetful he was or rebuked him for even daring for him to ask God to take his life. But God's patience in letting Elijah scream out is a picture of his compassion. You see, this is our second biblical principle. Biblical principle number two, God's patience with our thoughts and actions evidences his compassion. God's patience with our thoughts and actions evidences his compassion. You know, my friends, the proverbial leash that God gives us before he acts is actually quite long. 
Remember what Psalm 86, verse 15 says. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do a word study on that phrase, slow to anger, and you will find it both in the Old Testament and the New Testament many times. God is not quick to anger, but actually very slow to anger. He's very patient. Often, when discipline and punishment come, we tell God, why did you act so fast? But when we look back at our sins, how many days, weeks, months, and years has He given us to correct our lives before He enacts His discipline? How many warnings has He given us before He is compelled to act to correct us for our good? The fact that we aren't struck by the proverbial lightning because of the sinful and evil things we think, say, or do is a living testimony of God's patience with us. God sure does put up with a lot of our complaining, our whining, and our sins. And if He wasn't so patient with us, He would have given up on us a long time ago. This truth, my friends, is a testimony of His great compassion. I remember the story of a man's car stalled in heavy traffic as the light turned green. All his efforts to start the engine failed, and a chorus of honking horns behind him made the matters worse. He finally got out of the car and walked back to the first driver and said, I'm sorry, sir, but I can't seem to get my car started. If you will go up there and give it a try, I'll stay here and blow your horn for you. Maybe that will help my engine start. Before we tell God how slow He is to act on something and blow our horn in impatience, maybe we need to remember just how patient He is with us to deal with our own issues before He is forced to act. Something for us to think about. Truly, God's patience with our thoughts and actions evidences His compassion. I read now verses 5 and 6. Then as He lay and slept under a broom tree, Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The Bible tells us Elijah basically curls up and sleeps, and suddenly an angel appears to him and tells him to get up and eat. When he wakes up, there's a cake baked on coals, freshly baked bread, warm and just cooked. Imagine God sent and instructed the angel to take time to bake bread just for him and fill a jar with water for Elijah so that all he needed was right there waiting for him when he awoke without him having to do anything. The food and drink was specially and lovingly prepared by God through an angel for his complaining and spiritually depressed prophet all while Elijah was asleep. You know, while preparing for this message, I told Cindy, see, food therapy is in the Bible. In a time of great emotional stress and discouragement, what does God do? God sends food. But of course, the main focus is that while we are sleeping and resting, God is at work. My friends, He is a God who neither slumbers nor sleeps. So you can say God works the night shift Look what the psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. Psalm chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. 
But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory in the one who lifts up my head. I cry to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Here the psalmist reminds us that while we rest, God does the work. You know, I have encountered many a times going to sleep with a major problem and then leaving it to the Lord in prayer, only to wake up to find out the next day that that problem had been resolved. My friends, while you are sleeping, God is at work. I like how Greg Laurie describes this situation. It's 3 a.m., the house is quiet, your family members are asleep, it is warm, it is dark, and you should be asleep too. But your mind is racing, your heart is pounding, and worries overwhelm you. You may be thinking about the pressing needs of a tomorrow that will find you unprepared, or it may be an area of concern, financial, relational, or employment. You may even continually find yourself in a place where you're out of hope and out of peace, a place that points to a spiritual separation from God that leaves you vulnerable and open to attacks of anxiety from the enemy. There is something about this part of the night that seems to magnify all of these problems, and I'm not sure exactly why that is. I am convinced that we need God's help, not only when we are alert and awake, but even when we are sleeping. As you get ready to go to sleep, I think it's a great thing to end the day in prayer. It has been said that God works the night shift, and it is so true. The best place to start is back at the beginning of each new day. Start your day in prayer, committing your decisions, your challenges, and whatever you're going to face that day to the Lord. Then, as I suggested, end your day with prayer as well. In each instance, our prayer should be, Lord, here it is. I commit it to you. It reminds me of a quote from Martin Luther, pray and let God worry. I like that. Not that God worries, but the idea is that you should pray about it rather than worry about it. Let me ask you right now, is there something troubling you? Is there something eating away at you, bothering you, irritating you, causing you to be afraid? Pray about it right now. Just say, Lord, I can't handle it. Philippians says, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. The peace of God that passes all human understanding will keep your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So don't worry, pray. You will sleep and live much better. There is a stark contrast of Elijah's cry of anger to God's gentleness and sweetness. While he is complaining that God has left him, God says, no, I haven't, my son. Here are some fresh bread and water. Let me take care of your problems in a very tangible way. Notice, God was still at work, even if angry, distressed Elijah didn't ask him for any help. God is gentle like that. God is like that mother who knows her children have had a stressful day at school and bakes cookies or orders their favorite dessert to cheer them up, even without being asked. People who say God is a mean, vengeful, angry God simply haven't read the Bible. 
you see this is our third biblical principle. Biblical principle number three, God's gentleness in caring for our needs evidences His compassion. God's gentleness in caring for our needs evidences His compassion. As John Beersdorf notes, compassion is expressed in gentleness. When I think of persons I know who model for me the depths of spiritual life, I am struck by their gentleness. Their eyes communicate the residue of solitary battles with angels, the costs of caring for others, the deaths of ambition and ego, and the peace that comes from having very little left to lose in this life. They are gentle because they have honestly faced the struggles given to them and have learned the hard way that personal survival is not the point. Their care is gentle because their self-promotion is no longer at stake. There is nothing in it for them. Their vulnerability has been stretched to clear-eyed sensitivity to others and truly selfless love. That is indeed a wonderful description of God's gentleness for His people as seen through His Son, Jesus Christ, God Himself, who cared so much for us that in His gentleness, He died on the cross for us because it wasn't about His life. It was about His life for ours. Now look with me at verse 7. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. The Bible tells us it happens again. The angel of God prepared another meal. And notice that statement, for the journey is too great for you. God understood what Elijah was going through, and so he gently encouraged him. God gave him what he perfectly needed to restore Elijah physically and gave him strength to push through to the end of his journey. Elijah just needed some TLC, some tender loving care to be restored, which God provided for him. Look at verse 8. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. With renewed divine strength, Elijah journeyed nonstop to Mount Sinai, to the place where God met Moses generations before, and there they would have an amazing encounter. And you can read about that encounter at your own time in the rest of this chapter. But here in these verses, it is clearly evidenced the gentleness of God and how He showed His compassion for what Elijah was going through. And it shows us that God shows His compassion by helping us in the care of what we're going through. This reminds me of a story years back when I was at the BI, the Bureau of Immigration, processing my renaturalization papers to reaffirm my Filipino citizenship. There were some issues with tracing my dad's citizenship to prove that I was a natural-born citizen. Anyway, I refused to pay under the table to get it done, and so I was ready for a long and arduous process. When I went with my documents to the main office of the BI in Intramuros, waiting for my turn to be called, I happened to see a woman on her lunch break reading her Bible. Her name was Arlene, and I commended her and asked if she was a born-again believer. She said, how did you know? I said, because I see you are really reading the Bible, and it's not for show. I said, I'm a pastor, and I'm so glad to see that you're doing this. She told me, Pastor, you know, it's really hard to be a Christian here. I said, I'm sure it is. 
As we conversed, she asked if I needed any help, and I told her my situation. And it turned out she was one of the people who screened the documents to make sure it was all complete, having been recently transferred to that position because of a need in the BI front lines. She said, your case is very complex, but I'll try to help you on your very difficult case. I went no less than 10 times and she shepherded me through the entire process from the lawyers to the director's office. After eight months, I finally got my needed papers, and I went back to thank her. When I asked around where she was, where Arlene was, they said, oh, she was transferred. I found out by tracing the dates, she was transferred to another division soon after I received my approved documents. Now, some would say that's a coincidence. But I remember that story fondly and see clearly God's compassionate care by providing for my very needs in the most gentle of ways through a woman named Arlene. As David Bass notes, in the ancient world, compassion was in short supply. It was rare enough in the everyday world of people, but it was virtually unknown as a divine attribute. As a rule, the gods of Greece and Rome were heartless, cold and indifferent to human suffering, and people followed suit. Some ancient philosophers taught that having sympathy for one's fellow human beings was not only unnecessary, it was actually a weakness. St. Augustine illustrated the difference between pagan and Christian attitudes with a remark by the Stoic philosopher Seneca, compassion is the vice of a feeble soul. How different is the God of the Bible? His very nature is compassion. His delight is to show mercy. The Latin root of compassion literally means to suffer with. The Bible often tells us that God is compassionate, but in the person of Jesus, it shows us clearly. Jesus' whole ministry could be summed up in this one word. He felt compassion toward those who suffered physically. Listen to these excerpts from the Gospels. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, speaking of a leper in Mark chapter 1, verse 41. Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes of two blind men outside Jericho, as Matthew chapter 20, verse 34 tells us. He had compassion on the crowds, and he healed the sick, as Matthew chapter 14, verse 14 recounts. Jesus also felt compassion for people who were suffering emotional distress. One day, while walking past a little village, Jesus saw a funeral procession in which a widow was going out to bury her only son. When the Lord saw her, his heart broke. Luke chapter 7, verse 13 tells us, and Jesus restored the woman's son to life. It is clear God is compassionate. So remember, number one, God's forgiving restoration evidences his compassion. Number two, God's patience with our thoughts and actions evidences His compassion. And number three, God's gentleness in caring for our needs evidences His compassion. My friends, our God is truly a God of compassion. Can you see God's compassion every day in your lives? I hope we can, because it will change how we live in loving relationship with Him. May God encourage you through His words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how wonderful it is to see what a compassionate God you are. Often we think that you are quick to anger 
that you're always just looking out for what we do wrong. But Lord, when we read the Scriptures, we are reminded that you are indeed slow to anger, that you are so patient with us, that you are so compassionate. And may we see that every day in our lives through your forgiving restoration, through your patience, through your gentleness. May we feel your compassion and understand that you so deeply love us. And Father, I pray that in response to knowing your deep compassion for us, we will love you more. We will desire to serve you in a greater capacity. We will draw near to you. We will be in loving fellowship and relationship with you. Encourage us through your words, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.